Funnily enough, the first place I ever got honest was in the dock of a courtroom. Now, when you've lived the sort of life I had, that is the last place you want to get honest. Hello, I'm Dave. I'm the guy that's putting all this stuff together. I need to get better. Please make me better. I want to get better. Better. Better acquainted with you. Today we're getting better acquainted with Radcliffe. Hello, Radcliffe. Hello. Hello, Dave. This is the second part of the conversation that I had with Radcliffe. Wow. Editing it has been just as enlightening and inspirational as having it was. I kind of feel like Radcliffe is someone who's been to some dark and intense places, but the real kind of brilliance of the man is that he can come back and tell other people about them so eloquently and powerfully and often amusingly. The reason that I'm here speaking now rather than asking the normal questions is that this is part two of this conversation. I'm sure it works fine on its own and it stands alone, but really you'd be mad not to go back and listen to the one that came just before this. So download it from iTunes or listen back to it on Stitcher, Smart Radio, or go to the website www.gettingbetteracquainted.co.uk and press play on Radcliffe number one and listen to that first. Or, you know, listen to it second. But if you want the, the whole conversation as it was had, go back now, listen to that. Here's the second half. Okay, so this is basically the territory that I've heard before. Yes. The listeners won't necessarily. Would you like to tell that story? The first victim of addiction, for me, my first victim of addiction was my moral compass. And I'm just like any other consumer now. I hate being ripped off. I hate, you know, all that sort of world, which I used to live in. I don't, I don't want any part of it now. But no addict that I have ever met ever did anything from a sociopathic perspective. And what I mean by that is that nobody didn't care. I, I did appalling things in order to feed my habit in terms of people I ripped off, crimes I might have committed. And I've always thought, whenever people say, oh, I've got to stop using because I've run out of money, my immediate thing, fucking lightweight. Not having money never stopped me from using because I would just go and get it. And I have stolen, usually from soft targets, it'd be a mother or a wife or, or, or my children's piggy banks or what have you. I took no prisoners. Not proud of that, but I have to keep reminding myself that my need to get what I, what I had to have superseded any sense of moral probity that I, I may have lived or not lived under. I personally believe that we are all born with a moral compass. I personally believe that the addicts who tend to be very sensitive people, actually, part of the reason they, the, the lure of the drugs is so nice is that it, as in my own case, it, it, it made managing being me in the world bearable. Otherwise, it, I just felt too raw and all the rest of it. I never stole something believing it was the right thing to do. I knew it was wrong. And this is the bit that nobody really gets about addiction, is that... There is something so soul-destroying, and I use the expression advisedly, there is something so soul-destroying about following a course of action which you know you hate yourself for doing, but you cannot stop yourself. Yeah. And I'm not trying to hug, hug a heart, hug a hoodie, hug, hug a junkie. I'm not saying that what I did was acceptable. It wasn't. But I just, I would hate people to think that I did it without conscience. I did not. Mm. And the real frustration is that part of what fueled the cycle was in order to feel okay on day one I had to do things which I was going to regret and have so much remorse about on day two that I'd have to go and do it all again on day three to overcome that. That vicious cycle mm. is a huge part of what fuels the negative spiral. Certainly in my case, I wouldn't speak for everyone, but certainly in my case. I knew what I was doing was wrong. I hated myself for being weak, for not having the willpower, for not being able to say no, for not being able to stop, for all sorts of things. As I became 
more and more isolated and sunk lower and lower down the social scale. To such a point where, as you're well aware, you know, I ended up, um, I ended up living in the West End in a skip. And I do like to tell everyone that it was a convertible skip. It had a rag top. And, and I had a skip mate, Delroy. Uh, so it wasn't all bad. And by now I'm sort of living this bravado life. I'd rung my parents. I'd rung, you know, that last bastion of hope for, 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 for the failing. Uh, Hello, Mum, how would it be if I came home for a few days? And she just went, oh, no, dear. Our insurance wouldn't cover that. And put the phone down. And that was me gone. And Delroy had said, don't worry, you can stay with me. And uh, I said, really? Yeah, yeah, come on, come on. And we ended up in this fucking skip in sort of the back of the Soho House Hotel. My deluded state, as we walked up, you sort of go off Dean Street, and down the back, towards the back entrance of the Soho Hotel, and I'm thinking, oh, well, this is going to be all right. It's civilised, a bit of room service. No, no, no. We took a sharp left down Richmond Mews and to uh, a builder's skip which he'd fixed up quite well. We had a seat, which was an old loo. We had a canvas top, if it rained. And we had a crack pipe, which is pretty much all we, we needed. Did nobody bother you in there? I mean, it... Yes, people would bother us. I remember one legendary fight, actually, as I was climbing in. And somebody said, oh, you know, we're going to call the police. Da, 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 out of a sort of office window at the back. And I do remember turning around and going, words to the effect of, look, mate, you do what you fucking like. I know where you work. <laughs> and the guy did actually think think about it and go, yeah, that's true. He knows where I am. I may not want to get involved. And people would back off. People didn't want to get involved with people like us. Um, well, you're quite... I mean, you're you're quite a tall person. Yeah, and, and I was angry. Yeah, so and you, and you were addicted to crack. And I was addicted so, to crack cocaine. <laughs> I was angry. I had complete strangers shooting up snowballs of heroin and crack into my neck. I really don't think people saw me as a man following the normal course of social interaction. No. It was fuck you while I fucked myself and, and anyone else that got in the way. And I became a very nasty piece of work and I would describe myself as feral. I never forget, you know, the sort of things that I did. And I, I'm very aware that this will have a public airing, but I have paid my dues in terms of, of society for, for the things I got caught for. Inevitably, there were a lot more things I did that I didn't get caught for. And it becomes quite a violent, dark world. And we sort of had, uh, you know, we had a sort of routine. The, the easiest, quickest, most reliable source of income, I like to justify it to myself in that I was performing a useful social function, is, as you do, come across the woman that does meat provisioning for the sort of Meals on Wheels service in Camden who let it be known that she wasn't really interested in receipts, but as long as we would give her, um, let's say we gave her a £10 pack of chicken wings, she would pay us 50p in the pound. So if a, a pack of meat had 10 quid on it, she'd pay a fiver for it. So all, Dal and I used to go in to supermarkets, fill up with steak, meat, you know, walk out, straight out, just, you know, because the risk, the tariff is very low if you get caught. You get slap wrist the first time. At worst, you'll get a 30-day laydown, um, you know, in, inside, because it's just been done for shoplifting. But we, we did it on an industrial scale. We were out for breakfast, lunch, and, and dinner. And I'd go and nick 100 quid's worth of meat at a time. That would give me 50 quid, which would be enough to get a few bits and pieces to sort me out until I had to go and do it again. And we were claiming benefits as well. In those days, you used to have a book, so you didn't have to have an address. They didn't know we lived in a skip. And uh, it was a th I'll never forget, it was a Thursday. Glorious sunny day, and we were sort of in the park. And we'd, we'd had a bit of a bad Wednesday when I convinced him that what we needed to do was go to Boots and nick a load of foot spas, which we did. And I said, well, sell them to all the working girls in the flats. I hadn't worked out, of course, that these girls didn't spend any time on their feet at all, and therefore the need for a foot spa was not really required. So we were long. Sort of a dozen bloody foot spas, which we eventually just abandoned because we couldn't sell them. And I can remember we living on the benefits. In my view, it was like having a sort of government trust fund. Once a week, I could get. There was one day of the week I didn't have to put myself on offer. 
I get free money and I could just go to the man, sort out what I needed and I didn't have to put myself at the risk of arrest. And we're lying in the park, high as kites. And I just turned to Del and I said, do you know what Del, this is an effing budget existence, we need to upgrade. I said, we need to chop out all this fucking meat business. Anyway, cut a long story short, we decided that the best idea was to rob a bank. So it's now Thursday, about four in the afternoon. And I said, come on, let's get our shit together, we've got to work this out. Well, by the time we did work it out and get our shit together, it was Sunday morning. And uh, I don't think it's changed much, but not many banks are actually open on a Sunday morning. So my carefully worded, brazened out plan that we were going to march in with cucumbers in bags to look menacing. To look like guns. Um, <laughs> we had scotched that plan. Uh, so we were long, quite a lot of fruit and veg. When I suddenly realised... Actually, look, these guys are going in the back to clean up. And there was a Portuguese cleaning crew going into the bank. So we tried to smuggle ourselves in as part of a Portuguese cleaning crew. Delroy, who had a spiderweb tattoo across half his face, and his trousers were made out of beer mats, and me, six foot four, with braying like a hooray, were never going to blend that well as part of a Portuguese cleaning crew. In a bearing in mind that my only training for this venture had been quite a lot of meat out of Sainsbury's, one of which was funnily enough a leg of lamb the most well-travelled leg of lamb in Britain. I actually got done for that. I don't know if I told you that, Dave, but I, I got nicked for the most well-travelled leg of lamb in Britain, where they'd put a tracking device in it. I mean, in a leg of lamb. I got sent to prison for that one. What, so they put a... They, they put a tracking device in a leg of lamb, so that, you know, like an anti-theft device, so that when it went through the barrier, it bleeped and alerted the security guards who came hot-foot. I was oblivious to this. I couldn't believe that they'd put a fucking thing in a bloody leg of lamb and I mean the ultimate humiliation of that of course was turning up back in Wandsworth prison having just been released actually a couple of weeks before for another bit of unfortunate timing and it is quite humiliating if you're living that life I mean if you're going to jail you want to be walking in there especially if you're walking back in within a month of just being released you want to be walking in with with a sort of bit of Brinks mat or, or, or you know, car chase stories, yeah. glamour and daring. Something to add to your Something status. Something to add to, the, to yeah. the, your status. Going in, being nicked for a leg of lamb, it does not put you high in the pecking order. Anyway, so we, we, we try and do this bank and it doesn't work out and it's all kicked off. And I'm so angry that I rob a couple who are at the front of the bank at a cash point and um, it kicks off. I've got the people coming out the back saying these guys are trying to do the bank. I snatch this money as it's coming out of the cash bar. I just run past and just grab the money, push them out of the way, blah, blah, blah. So I've now been done for uh, a violent robbery because I've hit someone. I, I, even I'm aware that, shit, this is going, this is, this is going south. And yeah. we're legging it. Dale's gone one way up the road, I've gone the other. Above the builder, have a go hero. Bless his heart. It is Nissan Irvan with bits of lead pipe and washing machines hanging out the back. He parked his van on my feet. Bang! I am nicked. I'm not going anywhere. I'm in agony. The police think it's Christmas. They've got every unresolved fucking leg of land that's been nicked in the southeast bush. And they've got me. And it's all kicked off, and it's a major incident, and I'm dragged off to Chelsea Nick. And I am banged up there, and then I'm sent off to Wandsworth. And I'm in such a shit state. I've been living rough in a skip. I've just had a van parked on my toes. I have not had any drugs, and I am into going into hardcore withdrawal. And my toes, he's crushed my two big toes with his wheels. And my legs started to swell up, so they're looking now like kebab leg disease. I can't walk, I can barely bend my legs. I'm on the ones, which is the the ground floor of a prison because they can't get me to go up the stairs I can't get out onto the yard for exercise because my feet are so swollen and my toenails are dropping off and one of the screws has got a pair of trainers and cut the tops off of the toe out so that I can actually have something on my feet health and safety of course can't I'm, I'm in a pretty budget shit state and they decide eventually that actually I need to go to a hospital because He's probably not very well. They didn't know what, you know, I could have DVT, I probably, you know, AIDS, yeah, yeah. all sorts. I was in a shit yeah, yeah. state. I mean, it's hard to describe quite how bad I was. And uh, this, just to explain, this is how society thought I should be dealt with at the end of my run, should we put it. 
in that I was had my wrists shackled like that together like that. Not with handcuffs, but with shackles. So this sort of finger, if you think of your little finger, thick as metal on a brass central lock. And I my wrists clamped inside out like that together. Okay. Another set put on that wrist, locked to a guard on that side. Another set, so I'm locked to a guard on that side. So I am now physically pinioned right. between two huge prison waters. I'm then, a leather chain is put, or I mean a leather belt is put around my waist with a 20 foot steel chain attached to it and a guy holding that. I now look like Hannibal Lecter. But you can't run away anyway because you've got... But, but this is the, the, the ultimate irony. My legs look like, you know, Donna Kebabs. My feet, I can barely shuffle because I'm in such pain. But this is how they thought I should be dealt with. This is how society thought I should be dealt with. I am in such a shit state, it's hard to describe. And... There's no discretion. I'm then shuffled into one of those... Because I'm in such a bad way, they had to get a special sort of wheelchair ambulance-type van. Okay. And I'm with these guards, and I'm in that, and then I'm driven to Chelsea and Westminster Hospital. There's no discreet in the back door here, Dave. No, no. In through the front door. Well, the front doors of Chelsea and Westminster are revolving, huge, two big, huge revolving doors. Which, as soon as you touch the door, it stops. So it's like a huge comedy of errors as the th- me and a guard pinioned either side are shuffling sideways, it's like a carry on film, to get in. My toes that don't really work to get in the gap of the door as it passes. We could get in, but then the guy with the chain couldn't get in quick enough behind, so the chain's jammed the door. So we're waiting there. The janitor had to come, he's had to unlock all the doors, pin them down. By now, there's a crowd of people going, What the fuck's going on here? And I'm. Um, I'm sort of desperately thinking people are going to know. I'm angry. I'm junk sick. I am being physically held up by these guys. I'm on a chain. I mean, it's the ultimate humiliation. Taken up the back of the hospital to the ultrasound. Have my legs checked out for whatever it is. And as we're walking back, there's a huge long corridor. It just so happened that a cousin of my second ex-wife, Pendig, as she was at that time, was at a sort of doing a Friends of the Hospital table, you know, <laughs> bookstall. Oh. And she saw my head bobbing through the crowd in the distance and sort of went, oh, you like that. And then as I walked past, sort of ka-chunk, ka-chunk with these guards in step on this guy on the chain, she saw, and actually her reaction, she fainted. She was sort of went white, and the shock. The last time she'd seen me, had been dressed in a rather elegant white linen Facebook suit at my wedding in Portugal. And now she saw me in prison, mufti, pinioned between two guards, being led like a dog on a chain. Jesus. And she sort of collapsed with shock. And the amazing thing about that was it was the first time ever that I saw myself as others must see me. I saw myself through someone else's eyes and I was appalled. The denial, the bubble of what I'm doing is temporary or it's acceptable or it's not for, you know, it, I suddenly, this is what my life has become. I was, I mean, it was the ultimate metaphor. We talk about rock bottoms. I am physically pinned between two human beings who are twice, three times my size. I am being attached on a chain and led like a wild animal through a hospital. And people I know are fainting out to the side of me. And I just feel like a lost little boy, completely out of my depth, going, how did I get here? How did this happen? There was a bit of a moment, I have to say. It didn't all stop there and then, but the seed had been planted. Yeah. Okay. This is not what I signed up for. This is not cool. This isn't fun. This, and you just you've said it, mate. It's this is no longer fun. This this is serious. I mean, <laughs> it had taken this. Yeah. But even I was okay. Yeah. To put it bluntly, shit. The party's over. And I then spent the next ten months every three weeks back in court for sentencing they did not know how to deal with this guy and I was unbelievably lucky 
because I kept going back in front of this one particular judge, who's just, I was JR, someone held on judge's report, so I'm in, being held, under sentence, no sentence, on remand, effectively, uh, the judge's whim. And after a few months, they, he decided that um, me being in jail was not the right place. And I found it quite easy to get drugs in prison, I've got to say. Not so easy to pay for them, Dave. Uh, <laughs> that was a struggle. And I had I took a bad kicking and I had half my teeth kicked out of my head on the yard. I, I left my teeth as a, a present for Her Majesty on the yard at Wandsworth. Um, and I'll tell you something. You have your teeth kicked out. You want to know about pain? Oh, no dentist. I was given two paracetamol three days after it happened. It was the only medical treatment I got. Jesus. By the time I came out and was back on the road, my sort of stumps, the gums had grown over the stumps, and I, I was a wreck. I mean, I was a wreck of a human being. And I got out on remand to a bail hostel out in the East End. And, uh, which is a place where they basically bring paedophiles and lifers back into society after long sentences off on the island or Isle of Wight or whatever it is. So my compadres were not the sort of people that I wanted to hang out with. And I was locked into this despair, lonely, couldn't... As soon as I put my head above the, the reality parapet, I couldn't cope. Because you've been using for quite a few years. Yes. And so I guess all of your friends and your support networks are all kind of drug users themselves. And, or they've gone. And they've gone. I've written yeah. them off. The reason what led me to being homeless, I'm living with a, a pal in Notting Hill and uh, I'd ripped off the stash, then I ripped off his dealer. You know, there's a great story of a friend of mine saying he was just driving to buy me a cup of coffee to check I was all right. And he was sort of driving along and just saw this guy come up with, with a chair and smash me to the ground with it and kicked off in a fight. And, I'm jumping in his car and he's spitting at him, punching him through the window. And yeah, my life had become, uh, I wasn't good people to know, not by then. But so you were in that, you were in that place and you didn't have, you were lonely, you didn't have any friends and you were trying to, were you, try, you were trying to kick it or you were, you, you weren't even in a place yet to try I, to kick it? I knew it was over, but I didn't know what to do. Mm. I was waiting for sentence, and it's hard to describe, because I'd been sort of six, seven months inside waiting for sentence. I'm now in this sort of low cat. You're under a lock, you know, you're, you can get out, but you, what's the word? You're under curfew the whole time. Right. Um, still waiting for se final sentence. So I could have, you know, I'm looking at four or five years and I'm thinking, I'll just keep going until I, you know. And every three weeks I had to go back to this judge, appear in court. And amazingly, I kept turning up. And he is a remarkable man because what he saw was this broken, and I have a criminal record, and what he'd seen was over the years this sort of petty bit of fraud, bit of theft, bit of drug dealing. Escalating. That's a good word. And the crimes were getting more serious and it was now robbery and it was, you know, assault and, you know, police would see me on the street, they'd stop me, they'd search me. I was, I'd, I'd become public enemy, you know, maybe not number one, but a public enemy, certainly in the low, in the teens, I would have thought. Yeah, a go-to um, go guy for the police if there's anything going on in the area. Good of. expression. Yeah, I was a go-to. I would walk around Stratford. I walk into a shop. Within minutes, the police would be in there. Christ. And so I'd just be hassled. And life had finished. Life as I knew, you know, from the exalted neoclassical vaulted splendour of my public school and my doting parents, I was this sort of feral street junkie, living a life when nobody wanted to be anywhere near me. And I'd abandoned all my friends or ripped them off, uh, and I'd abandoned myself, if that makes sense. 
So how did you climb out of that uh, here? Because we're, we're, we're sitting in well, your, your house now, aren't we? And, yes. and, and you know, it, it's a house that is well lived in and really kind of warm and I think, you know... Yes, it's, 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 it may not be much, but it's, it's sort of decorated in opium chic. <laughs> it's affectionately named by me and my friends and my family. It's Humility Villas, we call it. Yeah. You may have noticed coming in, there is a sign in the lift that says, do not urinate in the lift, which has proved that I'm the only person in the block that can read. But, said. you know, you're in a but block, you're in a house. It's, and you're, it's you're the longest, well, the, it's the longest, most stable home I've ever had, which is why I attach to it so much. And it isn't much, but it's clean, it's tidy, it's got possessions in it that I haven't sold for drugs. Yes. It's got stuff, it's got pictures on the walls, it's got pictures of my kids, it's got a guitar or two. Yeah. Yeah. It's got stuff. It's got me in it. You know, and my you know, my friends and you've come around, you know, I've got a place where you can come and visit, we can come yeah. and chat. You yeah. Know? And it it's well, it actually almost gets me uh, gets me going because you know there was a time when I didn't have any of that. Well, that's it. I mean, how did you so come very grateful for from that. there to <coughs> having a house and to kicking yeah. kicking it? I mean, well, how did that happen? Funnily enough, the first place I ever got honest was in the dock of a courtroom. Now, when you've lived the sort of life I had, that is the last place you want to get honest. And yet, something had happened that day in the hospital and the fight was gone out of me. I would have settled for anything. I was a very desperately lost human being and something in the way that I kept coming back or the whatever it was, this judge took a look at me one time and he said, and he, he got cross with the prosecution lawyers, why haven't you got a case ready? It's been 10 months. This man has been turning up here every three weeks for sentencing, living with this sword of Damocles or whatever. And he said, what am I to do with you, Mr. Royd? I was beyond caring. I was beyond trying to style it out. I was beyond trying to have a slick answer for everything. I was beyond trying to brazen it out. I just said, uh, you can do what you like with me. I said, but if you send me to jail, you'll just have a bigger problem to deal with when I get out. And he, he looked at me and he said, so what do I do with you? He looked me in the eye and people didn't look me in the eye anymore. I, I didn't look people in the eye. I looked him in the eye and I just looked at him and I just, I just said, help me. Just help me. And I've got to say, he fucking did. And he got probation involved, he got da, da 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 he put me on a special court order and I had to go and see him every two weeks. I had to go and report to him in court. And he, funnily enough, the, the, the side note to that is that I went, I got involved with a self-help group and some years later when I'd stabilised my life and I hadn't been using drugs for a long time, this guy this same judge, Judge Phillips, Justin Phillips, a wonderful man at uh, West London Magistrates, had a plan to set up something called the Dedicated Drugs Court, which, when you consider that in the London NICS particularly, something like 90% of all the inmates are there for a drug-related or drink-related crime, spotting trigger offences in offenders and offering them the opportunity to seek professional help and rehab and, and, and counselling for what is a, you know, the crime that they get done for is a tip of a very large iceberg. Of, you know. Yeah, yeah. But the, certain trigger offences like that, um, his idea was, was to try and engage with them. Um, and I was, he was, obviously had committees and all sorts going on and He'd invited members of a particular group that I was involved with to come and talk to him and advise his, his panel, so 20 of them, government quenga. And I was involved in, in that and was asked if I could go down and do it. I just said yes, I was happy to go and share my understanding, my experience with this. 
And when I walked in there, he saw it was me. He burst into tears. And we had a huge hug. He just stood up and he hugged me. And it was very touching because he he said, my God, this is one of the guys I was talking about. There were two guys that he used as his guinea pigs. I was one of them. That had born this idea of this dedicated drug school. And he had no idea it was me that was going to come talk. That's amazing. But it was an amazing moment where he, and he did it, they had this, I don't know if it's still going, but they had the West London Dedicated Drug School where he sits in session and these trigger offences, it's not an easy regime, but just chucking junkies in jail doesn't do anything. No, no. Keeps them off the road for a couple of weeks. And so that was an amazing thing, and we've been in touch since. And you know, we've we have lunch together, and uh, he, he's an amazing man. I, my, I have a huge debt of gratitude to him. But I engaged in life again, and it took a long time. But I, I stopped, I stopped the sort of cycle of self-defeating behaviour, and you know. Actually, what happened is I got helped into a rehab or a detox, and I went into that detox. And I left this detox, still homeless, in a, in a pair of stolen shoes and uh, stolen socks, which didn't match. Um, and I went to a, a group of people, a sort of self-help group that I knew about. I walked in there and I said, this is me, and I... I want to try again and try and sort my life out, whatever. Just basically tell these people exactly where I was, who I was, and what my situation was. I was homeless. I walked the streets all that night. Didn't have anywhere to live. I had nowhere to go. It was cold. It was January the 6th. It was a bitterly cold night. But I didn't... I didn't go and school. I felt very sorry for myself, I felt very scared, but I didn't pick up. I didn't go and do what I would normally do. And the next day I had to go and report to probation, which I did, and they very quickly got me housed in a, in a kitchen with a bed in it, as I called it. <laughs> uh, and it was a kitchen with a bed in yeah. it, up in Bounds Green, miles away at the far end of the northern. Yeah, I, I, I work quite near. Oh, great, OK, Bounds. well, you'll note, uh, in Bounds Green, there's sort of Greek landlord, there wasn't even a street door, you know, it was just a slum landlord, basically. The irony is I'd sort of prayed to be housed by Kensington and Chelsea, because it suited my accent, obviously. And the irony was I was, but in Bounds Green, so I, I learned <laughs> that I had to be a bit more postcode-specific. And then fate again took a hand when the terms of my court order were that I reside in the borough. So they were compelled to bring me back into the borough. And I was temporarily housed in a flat. And then this came up six months later, whatever it was. And I've been here ever since. Been there for seven years now. Wow. And you know what? It is the, the as I mentioned, the most stable home I've ever had. And since then, well, I've not looked back, as it goes. But, um, but it was a very, it's very good. I haven't sat and talked about this for a very long time. Yeah, no, I, I could, I mean, it's obviously bringing up. So, yeah, it takes me back. Um, it's hard, you know. Because you normally do it as a performance, don't you? Well, yeah, but... You, which yeah. is a, which I'm not, not trying to say, I'm not trying to say there's anything ingenuine about that performance, but you've kind of yeah. learned the lines for it, and then this is a yeah. different experience. Yeah, well, that is, I'm seeing, a, but that's a... a a, a short step in, you Exa- know, yeah. it's a very different environment. I mean, we're just having a chill and a chat, so it's nice to sort of give you the story behind the, the story, you know. It's a very, the performance side of it, yes, you know, I mean, the, the obvious sort of irony of this very posh sounding guy talking about being a shoplifter, living in the skip, I mean, it, it is quite shocking. Yeah. And it has a, it has an impact. and. You and I are both aware of that. Yeah, absolutely. That doesn't invalidate it as a, as 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 a because it is my experience. Well, it, but it's rather nice to actually tell you the tell you the story. And, and behind all that bluster, there was actually what I was was a very broken, very lost human being who was very lucky to have had a set of circumstances that put him in front of 
or in the way or put other people in the way people who when I did eventually sincerely ask for help were in a position to do something practical and it's not an easy thing to come up I mean the prognosis for most people in my situation would be a long-term jail sentence an early death through mm. violence and or hypothermia somewhere or or madness I mean absolutely I think the reason that this the, your story kind of has a dramatic effect is like you say because of the kind of extremes the difference of like from rich to homelessness but it, richness to homelessness but then I think the the other reason is because it kind of really challenges people's assumptions that, that someone with a posh voice might be someone who, who becomes homeless that's not something that people think about very much and, yeah. and also that someone yeah, no, that's who's fair. That's and also fair. I think that, that someone who's homeless would then not be homeless anymore you know, because, I mean, one of the things I was well, thinking that about... That is the thing, is, is actually coming back from that. You've touched on something there, is, is perversely, the responsibility of a home, and TV licences, water rates and stuff like that. I really struggle with it. I know that sounds really childish, but I really struggle with the day-to-day -day responsibilities of just being responsible. For yeah. Because one of the huge bullshit payoffs, if you like, of living the life that I used to live was... was was you know renegade to the last you, you know, never have to think about those yeah. things it's the know. ultimate act of, of, of self-indulgence you know yeah you know it, I, I can be alternately sort of a tragic romantic Byron-esque figure in my head yeah living this sort of 19th century opiated sort of dream world of you know but they literary bliss yeah the, the reality was is I was a scuzzy feral street hoodie junkie nicking razor blades and chicken wings and robbing handbags well and I think you know, people. Byron probably would have been the same if well, he, he hadn't had so much uh, money to, yeah. to, to plough through but the point is is that the, re the, the weird thing is is you know all of that it, you know I used to be <laughs> I was an options trader in the city Trading London and and American markets, earning ridiculous amounts of money, and uh, having inherited money, I then earned loads of money. Do you know what? My addiction, it doesn't care where I come from or how much I have, it will ignore the first and have all of the second. What? And different people can last longer because they had bigger pots, perhaps. But my predilection for all that shit, um, when I say all that shit, all the drugs and the high life. What? You know, I pay, I'm very lucky to be alive. Absolutely. What do you think? I mean, when you, because you live in London. I do. And, and so do I. I do. And you do. London is a We're place of, of massive homelessness. Yes. And. I mean, one of the things you... Because I've, I've lived in different parts of the country, and when you come to London, one of the things that I noticed is the extremeness of the homelessness here. You have homeless people all over the country, but in London, they're like homelessness max. You know, yes, turns homelessness plus. Very, very extreme. Yeah. And, you know, every day you come into contact with it, and you want to you wanna remain human and to connect with other humans. Yeah. But then over or at least this is the, the way I've experienced it, is over my time in London, I've learnt to stop connecting with homeless people when I pass them because it doesn't help them, it doesn't help me, it doesn't help anything in that. that that's a rationalisation, that's probably bullshit. What's your opinion when you see, when you see someone who is in the states, I guess, that you were in? In the early days, I spoke to every one of them and I bled for them and with them. And I felt guilty. And now I probably, do you know what? I am probably more cynical than ever. I get very cross when I'm with people who, and they'll go and give change or they'll go and give whatever. And I'll say, and they'll say, oh, no, but I want to help them. My radar's pretty good, and I say, well, I don't think giving that guy more drugs is the answer to his problem. And uh, I've had serious rounds with girlfriends or just friends about it. But I know what it's like 
I, I want, I've been in, in that person's shoes. I think it's a, it's a human tragedy which doesn't need to be there. We could, if we chose as a society, choose not to tarmac a couple of roads in Peckham or Knightsbridge or, or Ealing yeah. and provide more shelter. We yeah. could do that. Yeah, we could. We have the power to do that. Why we don't, I could shit with frustration sometimes. And I get, and it's so ironic because we talk about, we put people in boxes and we, we talk, you know, if I walk along the street today and you know, in a pair of jeans and a clean t-shirt and a pair of shoes with heels on, and I go, hello, how do you do? These people won't believe that I sat with them. No. They don't believe it. No, they wouldn't. They don't believe they I was one of them. They wouldn't really, yeah, they wouldn't at all. And what is so sad is that I probably had more experience of coming from that position to where I am than a lot of other people. And yet uh, the frustration is, is that they will reject it because they will look at the surface and go, no, mate. Yeah. That's... And I find it, I have learned not to try and engage with it. Perhaps not for the same reasons as you. Well, I get the same overload thing. But I mean, some of it's the same. One of the things I worry about is, whether is it whether it's a rationalisation or not is that I'm pretty sure that most of the money that you give to a homeless person goes on drugs, uh, a lot of them anyway. Yeah. And 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 the, the the thing I when I used to give money to homeless people when I was a teenager because I used to I used to talk to all of the homeless people in Cardiff where I lived. I used right. to talk to them, yeah. and I used to give them money. And my argument always used to be that it's shit being homeless and. I don't mind that, 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 that when I was a teenager my argument was I don't mind if they're using that to buy drugs yeah. because that will at least make their night a little yeah, bit more you get, bear, yeah, you get bearable a little bit of yeah a little bit of relief and then as I've got older I've been well that's that's that doesn't really solve the problem and you know my fantasy now is is always for years and I'm you know it's easy to have fantasies and then you don't act on them yeah. but I mean my fantasy's always been well to go round in the winter with pork pies and gloves and socks because those are things that they won't spend on on uh, on drugs and that would actually have a practical help i mean but i mean i you know that's just a dream that i never get well, there to are, doing one, there one are, day I've i want to do it. you know i have done little bits of crisis of christmas and things yeah, like that yeah i keep um, keep meaning to do that and i mean no one i talk to when you you know, we're sitting here, we're comfortable, we've got cups of tea and it's a lovely day and we're mm. having a really, really nice conversation and we're safe. Yeah. Try having this conversation where you don't know where you're going to sleep that night, you don't know where your next meal's coming from and you're jump sick. It's yeah. not going to happen. Now, I am not trying to disassociate the responsibility of the individual homeless addicting person, whatever. Not all homeless people are addicts. I think we'll make that point. That's true. They're yeah, really I, not. Yeah, it's I didn't very, mean to suggest that. No, but it's very it, it's it, it's very easy to think. Oh well, they are. And I don't like. I have a rule because, like you, you know, I go about my life and I come across them. If they're honest with me, they are more likely to get direct help. That's the currency I use. If I'm being bullshitted, and I'm probably quite good at spotting it because I've been on that side of the fence. I, I tend not to help them. If somebody just said, oh, mate, I just need a couple of quid for a beer or give me a quid and I can get a bag. Funnily enough, I'm more likely to respond to that degree mm -hmm. of honesty. Yeah. Where given a free hand, which I don't have, nor do I particularly have any political inclination, where I get frustrated and cross is that as a society as local councils as a government whatever we have enough resource yeah. to stage a ridiculous two week athletic fest <laughs> yeah why don't they make that whole town available there's a whole village yeah. built because what price clearing up and giving some people some hope. They won't. No, they're selling it to foreign companies already. 
Yeah. They're so they've already, they're they've already got the deals on, and, the, on and the buildings. That was pre-brokered before they yeah. put the first brick in. Absolutely. Yeah, now, my that. frustration is, I am, I'm a pragmatist. I understand the way the world works. I'm a grown-up. I used to be a city boy. But there is something deeply flawed with a society that will tolerate that degree of, of human misery mm. on its own doorstep. And I, I have to own that I'm as much a part of that society that tolerates it as the next. I have a slightly skewed perspective in that I've been that side of the fence. I'm now on the other side of the fence. And I have a survivor's guilt, if you like, which is probably why I haven't amassed anything. Because I actually, I'm much more concerned with, with enriching my spirit than I am my bank account if that makes sense that's, yeah that's, and, and that I'm not saying I don't like I don't like money and nice things I do I if I if I could find the right people to sit in a room and go just listen to these people listen to their stories listen to what they have to say the thing that really is terrifying is the percentage of people who I used to hang out with, who are ex-forces, who have been institutionalised from the age of 17, gone off Fort Wars for us and all the rest of it, they come back, there is no safety net. There's a bit, but not yeah. enough. The psychological and social problems they face trying to interact back in the real world, which doesn't care one way or another. You know, One minute they're on telly being stars, blowing up Hellman, the next minute, they're begging for a cup of tea in Charing Cross Station. Yeah. There is something deeply wrong, deeply, deeply wrong, with a society that can have the ability to stop that and, and yet not do it. I don't believe that getting homeless people housed and safe has any political value in this country, which is why nothing is done. And I think that's tragic. Mm. because the real beauty of people is when they are free to tell their stories yeah you know you could have been doing a story and a chat like this with someone whenever it was eight years ago nine years ago and the person that they would have been talking about was me well here we are however many years later having a talk about somebody else who hopefully one day you'll be sitting with having a conversation like yeah. this again. My point being is that there are beautiful people out there living shitty, ugly lives. Absolutely. And unfortunately, just like everybody else in the world, we are repelled by the squalor and the hopelessness of it while actually dismissing the human being that's in there. I have been that person. I'm no longer in that position. I tend to focus my give back, if you like, on much more drug specific in terms of, I, I have a real useful experience of having been on the drugs and having got off them. That bit I, that bit I can help with. Mm -hmm. And I'm a great believer that if you can get people out of the cycle and into a constructive world they've got a better chance because that's what happened for me but I don't believe that anything like that will happen without a central government policy yeah. that will prioritise it and everything is just you know we are lucky enough to have the Salvation Army we are lucky enough to have the Krishnas people that went around and do the soup kitchens and stuff that keep people you know they're keeping people alive yeah a lot of people say to me well why don't you just open up your doors well I don't believe that's the answer either if any voice that I had could could have any impact it would be to not look at people as homeless just look at people look at human beings and do what we're doing is actually find the time to have a conversation yeah. and find out, find out who they are. Because what tends to happen is, oh God, here comes, and you do it, and I'm not getting no, you, I, and I do it, and I'm not getting it. I do it, I but do we it. Are, fucking compassion overload, I can't deal with it well, now, I'm right. busy for a meeting, not my problem. One time I was, when I worked in Preston, I, uh, 
ended up in the city of Preston, you know, having two hours to kill. And I had a very long conversation with a homeless guy called Tony, particularly pertinent to me because my brother's called Tony. Um, so that's, you know, it's funny how these little details are really point. human. Make you there's a touch human. point. And, 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 and he was, and you know, and this, this guy had been a teacher, like my brother is a teacher, and this guy was an alcoholic, and that's why he would, and, and he yeah. told me his story. I mean, yeah. you know, I, I don't want to, I will misremember it now, because years have gone by since yes. then. But I mean, and I... But as a consequence of his drinking, he'd ended up screwing yeah, his life up. that's right, and he, you know, and, and, he, and, he, and, he, and, he, and I sat with him for these two hours, and, you know... I don't do that anymore, and it does make me sad. Maybe I should sort of sit sit down with with people and not be so scared to connect. But it's not because I don't see them as human that I don't want to connect. Because well, the irony is, is the only people that have got time to do that are the homeless people yes, who haven't got jobs. That's right. We all get busy with life, and that's the tragedy. I mean, I think. Well, I think the the other thing is, I think it's, it's people are scared to open that door because they don't know how to close it. Like if, if, if you sit down with a homeless person and you really find out why yeah. and how they become that way, then you have to take some responsibility yeah. for yeah. them and then you don't have that power necessarily or can, you know, and you and can't do that for everyone. Them, why that person yeah, and not somebody else? Why do you choose else? one over the other? Which, absolutely. Um, what, but as a society, I know it's a bullshit idealism, <laughs> but as a society, wouldn't it be wouldn't it be cool if we could find a way to engage, re-engage with these people? Yeah. And more importantly, allow them to re-engage with life. Because that's what I needed, was a few stakes in the ground which allowed me to lasso my own ropes, if that makes sense, and pull myself. But you've just got to have something to lasso it onto. What's it? James Brown, I don't want no one to give me nothing, open up the door and I'll get it myself. Pretty much. And that's, cool. so that's, that's it. it. You have to have the door opened and then you can get it yourself. Yeah. yeah. And it, it, it's the, the unfortunate thing is, is if you're in a, an anorak you've slept in for a month, nobody wants to open that door. Well, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's, the, that's the reality that's of it, the, isn't that it? Is the, and I don't know if it's a function of society or if it's a function of the human condition. And we will always have the haves and the have-nots. What, what I find ultimately distressing is that the have-nots don't have to have-not. And we as a society should be able to find a way of making those doorways more accessible. It's a shame. And I don't know what the answer is. No. I just know that whatever we've got going on at the moment is not effective because the numbers, in my estimation, seem to, to keep growing. So it would be a beautiful thing if we could find a way... I don't know if we will or not. Well, the haves keep getting richer. Well, the haves <laughs> do seem to keep having more. Yeah. And the have-nots, they just have not. Yeah. You can't go any further, like, you know, the, the, yeah. homelessness is, is c remains the same kind of exp experience, with the, but richness seems to be just incredible. turned up. So I have much. lived a life where I've envied my friend's new million-pound house on Clapham Common and gone round for dinner and then gone home to my... Not quite a million pound house in Clapham. I have felt a keener sense of envy when I saw a new anorak in a fresh blanket. Wow. On another human being. So I've my experience has shown where my if this makes any sense at all, has shown that we will expand or, or, or subtract within our circumstance. And actually it was a red anorak. It was a red, sort of, you know, out of one of those like hiking shops. It was beautiful, padded, really lovely coat. And I, I envied, I, God, I envied that guy. Amazing. I would have felt like it was Christmas and birthdays combined had I had that. It's wow. really interesting. And now I worry about, he's got a nicer car. Yeah. He's got a nicer girlfriend. He's got a nicer light fittings. It never ends, does it, really? Yeah, it Wherever doesn't. you are in society, but you still I think still that's the point, is, is the, in, and that, that is part of the human condition. I just, and I don't know how to make it useful. <laughs> All I know to do, and it's what we're kind of doing, is, is, is I share my experience of life with other people. Absolutely. 
I don't know whether it's, it's, it's the easiest way is to amuse, that's fine. But actually, behind all the, the, the gallows humour, which is, which is useful, it has its place. Yeah. Nobody lives the sort of life that, that I sort of went through without having at least, you know, the compassion. But where, how, how to turn that compassion into practical action. I'm a great believer in action. Knowledge without action, valueless. What's the point of knowing something if you can't do anything with it? No point. That's why I didn't like Latin. And uh, even more so today, I don't think you can think or, or talk your way out of these situations. Yeah. But only through the, the discussion and the think tanks can we come up with, 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 with solutions. The problem is the solutions are not sexy, they're not popular, they don't get you voted mayor, they don't get you a political advantage. No. Because we as a society have learned to tolerate it. So it, it, it's, it's understanding, and my tolerances, and, that, and, and I'm aware, because I've lived it large and I've lived it small, and my tolerances are just accordingly. It is, it's a fascinating, it is a fascinating thing. It is. It? I mean, I, I agree. I mean, yes. it's hard to work out how to practically put these kind of things into action, but ultimately we just the only way is to convince the people who have power that they matter and yeah. how do, how and do it's, how, it's how it's how it's how to give give that that a voice I, I mean the irony is you know in, in an area I know a bit about as well drugs you know but the government's policy on drugs is is to give them drugs yeah that's right Methadone. hello Methadone, yeah. and the reason they do that is that they can be seen to be addressing the problem. I personally don't believe that if you're an addict, using drugs is a sane response. Because it's not, it, all it can do is compound the problem. Well, this is And using, using, as official policy, using drugs to give people with drug problems is insane. Yeah. But we don't want to resource the alternative which is to educate people and, and support them into their own life. Now, I was lucky, as I found people that, that I could learn from, and I, I was teachable at that point. But I don't believe that what I did is beyond the grasp of anyone. I think anyone could do it, given the opportunity. Um, and I think my responsibility, I feel in that is to is, is to is, is to carry my experience as, as you know just to tell that experience to people so that should they feel they want to try and have a go I'm very happy to tell them what I did and how I did it yeah but I needed a lot of help and I needed a lot of other people's time and input and a lot of that you know what's interesting though is, is an awful lot of that was was just being rehumanized and there are people that had a huge impact on my life that all they did was just acknowledge me. Yeah, it's hard to it's hard to, to tell what uh, tell you the value of that when you've lived a life where ten thousand people have walked past and no one. Yeah, I mean, I have. I mean, I I can understand intellectually what you're saying, but I'm completely aware that I don't emotionally understand it one one little bit. I'm not sure if I emotionally understand it, but <laughs> I, I, I emotionally have experienced Yeah, I, I, I can't know imagine feeling like. that it way, is, I guess. That's what and, I mean. and I have had the, the one of the most, you know, I mentioned earlier about the humiliation of going to jail for a leg of fucking lamb. <laughs> one of the most poignant things is my children's nanny. So I was with another friend, begging outside a tube station and I looked up and my children's nanny was there standing in front of me crying at me how can you live like this that was awful that was awful I could see the pity and the rejection and the sort of incomprehension and she'd seen me as, a, as this sort of, in my own world, and she'd... She'd seen She'd you. heard the slides, yeah. you know, I know he's in trouble. And then she encountered me as a homeless street beggar. 
Amazing, really. No, I mean, it's amazing, and amazing is the right word, I guess, but also it's the opposite of amazing. It's very mundane, in a way. But, yeah, there's nothing... Those are the sort of things that touch me, that moved me, that I can... You know, it's been really good, this, because I'm, I'm sort of remembering in, in, in stillness. It's not a performance. I'm not trying to show off. I'm just mm. trying to share stuff that had a power for me and still does when I... You know, I... I was just remembering. It was a day very like this, the same sort of light quality. And she was slightly in shadow, and I, it took me a while to recognise her. And... Uh, it's such a tiny little story in, in the billions of people on this planet. That interaction of, of a woman whose job was to look after somebody's kids, seeing their father in this much reduced state. I haven't remembered that in an age, Dave. Well, I'm, I'm glad that. Yes. Glad to have been able to be part of you remembering it. And uh, it's been a, I mean, it's been a great conversation. I am going to, I reckon, split it into two parts, which is fine. I've done that before for people much less interesting than you. Uh, Um, So that, and that's fine. A a two part, uh, I think, is entirely appropriate for, for so many. I mean, it's such a big story. It needs to be given, given proper proper amount of space the last sort of thing I ask people to do which I think I guess we've sort of been doing for a little while but the last thing I ask people to do is I ask them is there anything that you want to plug or promote which is very strange to come out of that that experience of remembering that moment into something so well I'm glad I'm glad glad you want my new book (laughs) (laughs) I wish uh, the, I tell you what I, I would I, I would want to promote is two things that I'm now involved with and you know about both of them. But if if people want to hear more than the obvious, get a little deeper into the psyche of of, of, of the modern human condition, and want to find kindred spirits and people in an ever accelerating. Facebook, YouTube, <laughs> Snap Judgment World. Yeah. Then Spark London and Stand Up Tragedy. Oh, nice. Are two things that, which I happen to have been very proud to be involved with and feel very privileged to have been asked to be involved with. They're things to look out for. The spoken word is the new rock and roll. <laughs> Hear me now. Remember these words. Nice. It's been lovely chatting. It's been brilliant. Thank you. The last thing that I ask people to do is just to say goodbye to the audience. Well, I hope I've said enough because I suspect that some of you will think I never want to have to hear from him again. <laughs> and some of you hopefully will go, hey, wow, you know, a nice story of turnaround and, and, and hope in, in an ugly world. Never say die. And my message to anyone out there listening is I don't care how bad it seems today the world will turn and you can enjoy the upside I hope you find it thanks for listening wow (laughs) goodbye (laughs) if you'd like to come and hear Radcliffe tell some of his story live then come along to the Leicester Square Theatre on the 4th of June for the next night of stand-up tragedy as well as Radcliffe telling his story we've got comedians we've got musicians we've got poets we've got all sorts of really great acts linked around the idea of tragedy in fact you can also hear previous getting better acquainted guest Richard Tyrone Jones tell his true story about discovering at quite a young age that he has a heart condition and how that affected him so it's going to be a great night and as Radcliffe said spoken word 
is the new rock and roll. Tickets are available from www.standuptragedy.co.uk. If you click on the tickets link on that page, it will take you to the Leicester Square Theatre's box office page and you can buy them online there. So buy in advance because it helps me not to become a nervous wreck. But if you haven't bought tickets in advance, by all means, come on down on the night and buy tickets there. It starts at 8.30. It's going to be a great evening. It's the last of the shows that we're doing at the Leicester Square Theatre for the moment. So if you wanted to come to a stand-up tragedy and you were waiting for the right one to come to, well, this is the right one to come to because it might be the last. Although hopefully it won't, as I have some big plans for stand-up tragedy in the future, which I'm sure I will reveal on this podcast at a later date. But never mind any of that. I hope you've enjoyed this conversation with Radcliffe and found it as moving and enlightening and amusing as I did. And if you haven't listened to the first part of the conversation, then I'm sure now you will go back and listen to it.